The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's pray again. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? And would you make this book live to me? Father, it's in the name of the Savior, which allows me as I see myself and you as I see you, not a terror. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. One more time, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've come this morning to that second portion in the third chapter. We're going to read this morning Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 down through verse 13. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, nope, I'm going to verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace that was given me by the working of his power. To me, that on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. So if you were here with us on the last Lord's Day, you very likely recall that we consider together the sixth verse here in Ephesians chapter 3. And what we found there was that the Apostle Paul was delivering to us the content of this wonderful mystery that had been entrusted to him. The reality that Gentile believers had been given full inclusion into the kingdom of God. That they, along with all the believing Jews, could hold fast to the covenant promises of God. And that all of this comes not through circumcision or any other external rite. It doesn't come because of our obedience to the law of Moses. It comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that is the singular, the only way of access into the kingdom of God and to all the promises that God holds out for us there. Then we came back Sunday evening and we circled back to verse 5. We asked some questions of ourselves there. What we asked was, this mystery that has now been revealed in Paul, was it completely unknown to the Old Testament saints? Was there no evidence in the Old Testament whatsoever the inclusion of the Gentile people? We went beyond that and we asked, if this is the case, does that perhaps mean that we're plan B? That this church era in which we live, it's a parenthesis. It's a, it's, it's a pause in God's redemptive purposes. He came sending his son 
to the Jewish nation, but they rejected him as Christ. And so he settled for us. He settled for the Gentile people. And what we found in text after text is that God was routinely reminding his people that they were called to be a light unto the nations, a kingdom of priests, to represent him in his glory to the ends of the earth. But we did find hints there of some type of, of primacy with the Jewish people. That in the Jewish mind, what happened was they were a light into the nation. And yes, they called Gentiles and all the world to the mountain of God. But that they came to worship him from afar, from the outer courts, if you will. That they were there to serve the Jewish people as God's chosen nation. And yet still there was something there for them. So they laid out the picture there of a proselytizing. You may come near, you may even come close, but it's going to require you coming through the nation of Israel if you're going to have any place in the kingdom of God. And yet what we found as we dug a little bit deeper was there were some shadows and pictures and signs that God was calling the nation unto himself, that there was going to be one path of redemption. But because things had been set up the way that they had and because the Jewish mind worked the way that it was, it required special revelation from God to drive this thing home. We looked at the Apostle Peter and how it took not just a revelation from God, but a harsh word from Christ, a vision from heaven itself in order for Peter to come to the place where he could confess, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As we read this morning in verse nine, this was a plan, this was a mystery that was hidden for ages in God. This was his eternal plan from all eternity past that he would build together this one singular people, not a Jewish church, not a Gentile church, but one new man called the church gathered together under the headship of Christ Jesus that he dealt with this peculiar people, this particular nation for the salvation of all nations. So now we shift our focus this morning. The apostle Paul, as we come to verses seven and eight, he draws our attention now away from the nature of the mystery and on to the nature of his ministry as one who's been entrusted with this glorious news. So whenever I come to a shift in thought in any of the, any of the scripture, and whenever we find Paul saying something that is, a, that is a diversion away from what he had begun to say, it's helpful for us to ask ourselves why. What's Paul's purpose in saying these words? He wasn't just wasting time. He wasn't just taking up ink and paper. What was the purpose behind the apostle Paul wanting to make clear to these people the nature of his mystery? Specifically within the context that we find here in Ephesians chapter three, the question that we ask is, in what way does Paul's ministry and a knowledge of it help to keep these Gentile Christians from losing heart, from becoming discouraged by the fact that he is in prison? I've come to the conclusion that probably Paul had an awareness that his imprisonment may have been taken as evidence to these people that God had become displeased with him. That maybe they began to doubt their own salvation. Look, if the apostle Paul does not have the favor of God and he has handed him over in order to be in prison, then maybe this message he proclaims is false. Maybe we're still lost in our sin and maybe we have no access to the kingdom of God and maybe we're still alienated and without God and without hope in the world. That's not all that uncommon a question. We have people often that can say, how can the message that this man proclaims be true when so many people hate him? So I think that's the driver behind what he says here. So we find in verse seven, he says, of this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
The gospel being the only way through which man can come into the kingdom of God. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Diakonos is the word in Greek, and it's where we get our word deacon from. It's a servant. It's a minister. Now, we think when we hear the word deacon or diakonos, we think immediately of this church officer, this official position within the kingdom of within the, the people of God, but doesn't always need to be read that way. I would remind you that we're moving our way slowly towards Paul's explanation of the gifts that Christ Jesus has given to the church, his bride. We'll come to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 to 16, where he talks about this. He says that Christ gave his gifts to the church, apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. That there's these men that God has called into the church as a gift from Christ to his bride for a specific purpose. Why is he given evangelists and preachers and the apostles and the prophets? To equip the saints, that is all the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now that word ministry there is diakonia. So we might say that a diakonos does diakonia. That a minister does ministry. And not just some official minister. You, you see, if we're not careful, we can fall into this trap and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, just, have many, just as have many of you, and we were convinced if you weren't a missionary and you weren't a preacher, what good were you? So that every time the Holy Spirit began to move in the life of a little young boy or girl, they thought the only way to please mommy and daddy is to say, I want to go to seminary. I want to be a missionary. That it was missionaries and it was pastors and then everyone else was a fraud. That's not at all the picture of what God has done in his church. The purpose of the pastor and the evangelist and the preacher and the teacher is to equip the saints for the ministry. There is no meaningless member. There is no useless part to the body. So he's talking here about the reality that he is a minister called to a particular ministry. And so we've got to consider it in that context. There's a specific task. God gives gifts as he sees fit. And so there's a specific task that Paul has been called for. And so we don't do the text justice if we just fast forward and do a where's Waldo. Okay, where am I in this passage? We need to see what he's saying about his specific work in the life of the Apostle Paul. And it was a, a unique apostolic calling. But I submit to you that God's pattern is very much the same with each one of his saints. Not identical circumstances. Doesn't come in the same way. But God's pattern and his design for the calling of men into the work of ministry, not vocational, but ministry in general, it's found here. And so we will come at the end to ask, how does God work? How does God move in the lives of men to call them to engage in his work? And that is what we must view it as. This is God's work for God's kingdom amongst God's people done in God's way. And I think this is why we find the Apostle Paul, just as often as he refers himself as a minister, he refers himself as a slave, a doulos, a servant. We find it in the beginning of Romans, Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Galatians 1.10, he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
And so we see perhaps a little bit of a difference here. We see that a, being called a minister, it points to the acts of service that we do, that the nature of the work that a minister does in ministry. Whereas doulos or slave or servant, it points to the servile relationship. I'm not just out here doing work that I've decided to do. I'm just not out here doing whatever seems right to me. I am a slave. I'm working at the behest of another. I work for the benefit of God's people under the lordship of God. That's what it means to be a, ser a servant or a slave in this ministry. So he says in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister. In verse 8, he defines what his particular ministry is. He says that he's been called of God to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now again, each servant has a job. Each servant has been called to a particular work. We read in 1 Corinthians 12 that God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. You remember when we were talking about the singular people that God is building, specifically with regards to us as living stones in a house that he's building, and talked about the fact that he's got a place for each stone. Often it requires some chiseling and some chipping in order to fit you for the work that he's called you for, but that he has a purpose. He has chosen each stone and he has chosen the work that it's going to do. And we read all throughout scripture and we have experienced in our own lives what failure to understand the ministry to which we've been called, the kind of damage that that does. Whenever a man doesn't understand the work to which God has called him or he desires, he decides that he's going to design for himself what his ministry is and not seek the will of God or perhaps when he's afraid, when he pulls back and he's either lazy or he's fearful of the work to which God has called him. We know this brings great destruction, not just on him, but upon his church. It should be no surprise then that when we come to the parable of the talents, we see that they're the wicked and lazy slave. He is thrown in outer darkness. That each slave will answer to his master. Each minister will answer to his Lord for what we've done with the gifts that he's given us and the tasks that he's called us to. So he's saying that he's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, He's been called, he's been set apart to preach this gospel to the Gentiles. Now, in light of everything that we've just said about this gospel is the only way of access into the kingdom of God. This gospel of Jesus Christ being the way by which man can lay hold of these innumerable treasures. What an honor it is to preach this gospel. What an honor it is to go out into the streets, able to freely offer another man's riches to a bunch of paupers. He says, I've been called to go and freely offer this gift of grace that God has entrusted to me. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, this is the Apostle Paul. In verse 14, he says that the love of Christ compels me. It, it controls me. I'm constrained. Not by external forces, not unwillingly, but by my own love. Love that began, though, with the love of Christ towards me. His love constrains and compels me. Verse 15, he says, we no longer live for ourselves but for him who for our sake died and was raised. In verse 18, he says, God through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was calling the world to himself and trusting to us that message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. This is how the apostle Paul viewed himself. I'm a slave, I'm an ambassador. A man who goes out and calls to the world be reconciled to God in Christ. This just wasn't just the way the Apostle Paul saw himself. This is the way that the world saw him. You remember the servant girl that had the spirit of uh, divination in Philippi? 
She followed along after him in Acts 16 and she cries out after Paul and the others, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Of all the things that you would know the Apostle Paul for, God worked mighty works through the apostles and yet what was the thing that stuck in this girl's mind, this one with this spirit of divination? What did she see most notably in Paul? This man preaches to you the way of salvation. Romans 15, 16, towards the end of that letter, Paul says that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He views himself in priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul wasn't a priest. He wasn't the son of a priest. And yet he says, I see some of my work here is this priestly service is offering you up unto God. He says, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He speaks not just to the Gentiles, but the whole world in the same way. Colossians 1.28, he says that him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's compelled and controlled and constrained by the love of Christ. This Christ who so loved him that he gave his life to purchase his salvation. The Apostle Paul goes out and he preaches the gospel, this message of reconciliation to God through Christ and he's appealing to men that they might come to trust in Christ be cleansed and justified and made acceptable before God that they can then come and boldly approach him what I'm trying to drive home to you here is that Paul's primary mission Paul's primary calling it was that of a preacher Paul's called to be a preacher that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1:17. he says for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel now, we know the Apostle Paul didn't hate baptism. He didn't object to baptism. He even baptized a few. But what the Apostle Paul recognizes that many men today need to recognize is that faithful preaching must precede baptism. The faithful deliverance of the gospel of Jesus Christ must come before baptism. So that's what he says. I'm a handler of the word of God, a proclaimer and a preacher of the word of God. That's central mission, not just to Paul. But of all the apostles, I want you to think about Acts chapter 6 when we see the calling of the first deacons proper. Those men that God had set apart unto himself to serve the physical needs of the people. We read in Acts chapter 6 verse 4 that the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now this doesn't mean you people go serve and we're going to come over here and pray. What the apostles are saying is, you will serve the physical needs while we serve the spiritual. I'm going to serve you by praying. I'm going to serve you by studying the word. I'm going to serve you by preaching the word, ministering the word of God unto you. He says, you will go and do this work to free us up for this. Now, this doesn't mean that they weren't tempted to get involved. There was a dispute there amongst the people. You remember this, the daily rations as they were being handed out. And don't you know the apostles... They probably wanted to get involved in this particular matter. And it wasn't that they weren't equipped to handle this particular matter. It's that that wasn't their calling. I've been set aside by Christ. He tells me my role. My role is to pray. My role is to handle the word. My, word is, my role is to deliver the word. And so he has set these men apart to this ministry that I may be faithful to my master, lest I be found unfaithful and cast into outer darkness. Do you see it? And so he finds himself as one, as an apostle, as one that's very much in the image of Christ. You remember that Christ said in Mark 1 at 38, he says, let us go then to the next town that I may preach there also. 
For this is why I came out. He says, I'm going to do miracles and I'm going to heal and I'm going to cast out demons. But ultimately, what's my ministry here? It's to preach the gospel. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then I want you to think about what the Lord's conversation with the apostle Peter was before ascending back to the right hand of the father after the resurrection. After Peter's three denials. Remember they had breakfast there on the beach. Jesus three times asking Peter, do you love me? But then he gives him a charge each time as well. You remember that he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Peter, I've set you apart to care for my people. And what do they need? More than anything else, what do these people need? They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, physical needs are important. And the people that meet those physical needs, the deacons that God has set apart to meet those physical needs, that's important. That's no lesser of a ministry. But what the people ultimately need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to see through the meeting of those physical needs to the God who met them. To the grace of Christ Jesus extended them in the gospel by which he loves and cares for them. And so primarily the apostles, they were preachers. And to some great degree, this call of preaching, this call of handling God's word, this call of gospel ministry, it didn't just fall upon the apostles, but upon, but upon every single pastor and preacher that God has called. I want you to think about the way that Paul spoke to young Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15, after telling him that he's to be a good soldier for Christ. I like that term. You're not just a minister. You're not just a slave, but you're a soldier. A good soldier takes orders and does what he's told often without understanding why or what the outcome might be. But he says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, as a worker who has no need to be ashamed. So he's saying, Timothy, here is how you could be approved by God. Here is how you can stand before God unashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's what I've called you to, Timothy. Now, of course, the call to a pastor, the call to a preacher is one of moral character and personal holiness as well. He's to be above reproach. He's to be upright. There's, there's a number of, number of requirements there, expectations that God has for anyone that he would call to the gospel ministry. But he must also be one who is capable of rightly handling the word of God, lest he be ashamed, lest he be unapproved by God. He says the same kind of things to Titus, Titus 1.9, that the elder, the pastor, the overseer, the shepherd, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That the pastor, he's been set aside not just to handle and preach the word of God, but to rebuke and to correct those who mishandle it, who seek to distort, distort it. What does it mean to look after sheep, but to protect the sheep? To guard the sheep, to chase away wolves who would destroy the sheep. He goes on to say in Titus 2 verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What's the greatest defense? What's the greatest way that a pastor can protect the sheep from the wolves? It's to teach them the truth. To deliver them the truth so that when the pastor isn't there, when the shepherd isn't there, and the wolves come, they identify a wolf. They identify false teaching. It immediately hurts their ears and, and, and doesn't sit right with their heart. He goes on in verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the picture of what it means to be a pastor. This is a picture of one that means to be called and set aside to this gospel ministry. And how much damage has been done by men who don't hold fast to this. 
by men who want to determine for themselves what this role of pastor is meant to be, or by churches who demand of their pastor that he be something other than what God has set them apart to be. Listen, I grew up in the era, as did many of you, with the whole pastor as CEO role. That a pastor's job was as one of a, a manager of a business, that his job was the bottom line. His job was to get butts in seats. His job was to appease every whelm of every person that ever stepped into that church, or that pastor is an event coordinator. His job was to put on parties and fun time events, particularly for the children and for the youth, or a pastor as marketing guru. His job was to present a particular front, that there was a, there, there was a man that stood out front as the face of the organization and that he was the one that was to represent them to the world. As I stand here and I say this, it makes me so very grateful for you. You've never asked of me anything more than to handle the word of God. But two things. You've asked of me to honor Christ in my personal life. And to handle God's word. But how many churches have been destroyed by men who didn't understand the mission that God had called them to? Or churches who demanded of their pastor something that God had never set out for him. So again, going back to Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is towards the end of Paul's life. He knows he's dying. He knows he's going to be put to death. And so what does he say? What do you say on your deathbed? The things that are most important for those you love to hear. So he says, 2 Timothy 4. After talking about the nature of scripture as being God-breathed, inspired, authoritative, inerrant. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. When the Apostle Paul charges you with something in the name of God and Christ Jesus, you do well to take heed. Who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. You can almost picture him grabbing Timothy by the shoulder and saying, you're gunning. Why does he have to say this? Why would you have to grab a pastor and say, preach the word? Don't let anyone discourage you. Don't get sidetracked because apparently it's easy to get sidetracked. Apparently it's easy to get discouraged. Apparently it's easy to get off your line. So he's grabbing him saying, if you don't hear anything else from me before I die, hear this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with uh, complete patience and teaching. And then he goes on to tell him, this is why this is going to be so hard. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's going to be a bunch of people who reject you as a preacher, who reject you as a pastor, and they will accumulate to themselves pastors that will tell them what they want to hear. They will accommodate their itching ears. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He says, Timothy, what you and I have been called to is a costly and oftentimes a lonely ministry. He concluded this letter by making evidence of that as he says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.16, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. He says, Timothy, everybody else abandoned me, but you need to hear me. God will not. 
you've been called to the gospel ministry, if you've been called to rightly handle the word of God, you've got to be satisfied with God and him alone because you may have no other friends. Now, this doesn't diminish the value of friends. As a matter of fact, it elevates it. How much does Paul delight in telling his friends how much he loves them? How much they mean to him? Try to come to me. Bring my cloak and my writings on the way. But I want to see you. It doesn't diminish friendship. I cherish friendships in this place. Every pastor cherishes friendships that God is bringing them. But what he says is, if you cherish friendships more than you cherish the gospel, if you cherish friendship more than you cherish rightly handling the word of truth, you'll miss it. So you've got to be satisfied. You may be left. You may get to the end of this life, find yourself standing on trial, and it's just you and God. And he's got to be enough. And he's not just whistling Dixie. This isn't just Paul saying, look, this might be the way it goes for you, Timothy, but whew, thankfully I avoided all that stuff. Think about the, the litany of things he lays out for us in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 11. Talks about imprisonment, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger from the city, danger from the wilderness, danger from the sea, danger from false brothers. And toil and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. But what's the last thing he says? He lists all that. And I've asked you before to consider what the Apostle Paul's body must have looked like by the end of his ministry. He comes to the end of that and what does he say in verse 28? And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. This is what weighed on Paul the most. Give me the 39 lashes and send me out stranded at sea. The thing that burdens my heart, the thing that causes me anxiety more than anything else is the churches. So this is the ministry that God has called Paul to. He's a servant. He's a slave. He's a prisoner. He's hated by many because of the very truth that God has called him, compelled him, constrained him, exhorted him, charged him to preach. He's overwhelmed with concern for his church. He's been lied about and oppressed by false teachers. He's been abandoned by friends. He's been rejected by men who have no stomach for the full counsel of God's word. And all the little boys said, I want to be a preacher. Who on earth would sign up for such a thing? It wasn't the Apostle Paul. You remember what Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus there. He says, Saul, why, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting against my will? I've set you apart from your mother's womb. Why are you resisting me? That's why Paul says here in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister. I didn't get in the ministry line. There wasn't a ministry fair down at the tabernacle. And I was just jumping in line to figure out I got to do something. He says it, it was brought upon me. I didn't ask to become a minister. I was made a minister. Now, you're not wrong if your mind is going to. Many of Paul's conversations with Timothy about this matter, though, because in his first letter, to Timothy, he says, look, if anyone inspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And I want you to know that I, as, as your pastor, I pray often. I spent much time in prayer, particularly over these last 
I don't know, 18 months or so praying that God will raise up within this church godly and qualified men to, to fill the role that he would call and set apart as lay elders. Again, I tell you, vocational ministry is not the end-all, be-all, but that as pastors and overseers and shepherds and elders, he would raise men up within this church to this very calling. But you've got to understand that in those days, in the days of Paul, to be called and set apart to this gospel ministry, to be called and set apart as a pastor into the church, this puts you very much in the line of fire, not just with words, but with swords. But yet still then, just as today, there are men who would twist this for their own selfish gain. One of the worst things that could have happened to the Roman Empire was when the emperor decided that he was Christian and the persecution let off just a hair. What happens then? There's something to be gained now by holding this title. There's a power to be yielded now by holding this title. And so, yes, there will always be men who aspire to the office of pastor for selfish gain or for their own twisted desires or their own ideas about what this thing might mean. But the reality is only God can make a true minister. Only God can make a pastor. Only God can rightly call a man to preach this gospel in a way that would cause his aspirations to be pure. Think about Jeremiah, Jeremiah 27 to 9. This text is probably familiar to many of you. He's lamenting to God what has become of him. Jeremiah said, I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become to me a reproach and a derision all day. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot. He said, I'm tired of proclaiming this word because I'm a laughingstock, and I'm, and I'm hated, and they throw me in a pit, and they throw a rock over the top, and they, they lock me in this earthen prison. Everywhere I go, people hate me, and I'm just crying night and day. And so I say to myself, okay, well, I'm done with this word then. I'm done with this message from God, but I can't. It's like a fire burning within my bones. I, I try to hold it in, but I can't any longer. I think this is part maybe of what Charles Spurgeon had in mind in letters to his students. He says, look, if you can do anything else in all the world, go do it. Now, I think there's probably some overstatement there. There's some exaggeration there in order to make a point. What he's not saying, look, if you stink at everything else, there's always the ministry. Although there's certainly been people who had that view. Those who can't cut it in the real world, they go hide in the church. He's also not saying that men who serve in the gospel ministry, men who have been called and set apart to handle the word of God, he's not saying that they do this under compulsion or unwillingly. But what he is saying is understanding the weight of it all. Understanding the overwhelming urgency, as Richard Baxter says, of being a dying man preaching to dying men. Understanding the judgment that will come upon us if we mishandle God's word or mislead God's people. Understanding the trial and rejection and persecution and hatred that will come. What he's saying is, if your heart is timid, if your mind is prone to wander and doubt, if you're not sure of God's calling in your life, and if the faithful saints around you have not given you an affirmation of God's call in your life, if you're not prepared to wrestle with God and spend the rest of your life walking with a limp, then this life isn't for you. If you can do anything else, go and do it. Martin Lloyd-Jones 
one of my favorite pastors, although I know some of you don't like to listen to him, I go to sleep listening to him and my wife will roll over and go, please turn that off. I'm going to just, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced one Sunday morning I'm going to show up with a Welch accent and y'all are all just going to act like it was normal. But he, he talks about the reality that preachers are born and not made and that the Holy Spirit comes and it sets upon a man and he tells his own story. You know, he's a medical doctor and he says that for two years he felt this calling on his life and he fought it with everything in him. He says you do your utmost to push back and to rid yourself of this disturbance in your spirit, which comes in these various ways. But you reach the point when you cannot do so any longer. It almost becomes an obsession and so overwhelming that in the end you say, I can do nothing else. I can resist it any longer. Much like Jeremiah, he says, it's like a fire shut up within my bones and I, and I, I can't stop. I, I, can't, I, I can't not preach the word of God. So we see here what he's talking about. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about the power of God, it takes the power of God to make a man a pastor. It takes the power of God to call a man, not just out of darkness and into light, but to set him apart for his ministry. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. It was given to me by the energia of the dynamis. You remember those two words? We go back to, first, to the first chapter, Ephesians 1.19, where he says that we, we behold in Christ Jesus and his resurrection, the immeasurable greatness of the power of his power of his power. Just piling up word upon word upon word. But you remember that dynamis means the, the ability to accomplish something. It's, it's the, the, the power, the, the, the ability to bring the thing to pass. And energia is the actual outworking. <clears throat> the effective working of that power. And so what he's saying here is that this thing that God has done in my life, this bringing of his grace into my life to call me to this ministry, it was according to his perfect will, working its way out through his infinite power. And so we think immediately about this with regards to the road to Damascus. Again, the apostle Paul minding his own business. And when I say minding his own business, I mean going to kill some Christians. But minding his own business, going along this road and Christ Jesus, the resurrected Lord, comes and intersects him here. But I need you to hear me very clearly. The power that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 3 is not that which blinded him. We, we, we make it all about the externals if we're not careful. It's all about the scales on his eyes that would later fall off. But you must remember there are plenty of men who have beheld the power of God and remained objects of his wrath. I'm thinking primarily of Pharaoh. Think about all the ways that he beheld the power of God. Exodus 9, 16. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power. In 10 plagues, he saw the power of God so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Plague after plague after plague, this man saw the power of God. He beheld the power of God and yet he continued in his rebellion. We know the answer to this, of course, because God had promised to Moses long before, hear me, long before Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Lord said to him in Exodus 4.21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The powerful working of God always accomplishes its purpose. And his purpose for the apostle Paul was to make him into a minister of the gospel. And so what we see is true of this working the power of the power of the power of God coming to work as he brings this 
this grace into the life of the Apostle Paul. It's not seen in the blinding of his eyes. It's seen in the enlightening of his heart. That's the transformation. That's the power that had to come to pass. That's why the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4 that the same God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, he had shown in our hearts to give us this, this glimpse, this vision, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord. That was the real miracle. That was the real power. That was the working that brought him to this place. So again, I ask you, who could be worthy of such a thing? Such a grace, such an overwhelming, powerful working of God. Again, it certainly wasn't Paul. That's what makes it grace. He says, verse eight, to me, though on the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You probably notice when I, I try not to add inflection when I read. I just want the text to stand alone and I'm not a very good reader to start so I do good just to say the actual words on the page but um, there's a place for a, for a dramatic reading, right? When we come to our tenebrae service, right? And, and Carrie and Jill, they, they read with drama the, the narrative there but I don't know if this is the place for a dramatic reading. But there's times when I can't help it. You have all noticed that have developed my own preacher way of saying God. It, you can't help it. It's not on purpose. But when I got to that portion in verse 8, did you hear it? Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me. To me. Of all people, Paul, the persecutor, the murderer, the hater of Christ and of his church. To me, can you believe it? Calvin said it was a great matter that St. Paul had been received by Christ as one of his sheep. But God, not thinking that to be enough, put him into the office of shepherd. You can imagine the apostle Paul being overwhelmed at the thought that you would let me be a part of this thing which I hated. You would let me be a part of this thing which I tried to destroy. He says, no, Paul, I'll make you a part of the foundation. I will charge and equip and send you to take this gospel to lead others out of that same darkness you were once in and to bring them into this marvelous light. To me? No wonder it was a light thing to him to be beaten and shipwrecked and hated and abandoned. He knew the gift of grace that he had received. So he says here, I'm the very least of the saints and we are such skeptics. I am, I'm a, I am a, Skeptical is not the word. What's the word? It's more jerky than that, Amanda. What am I? Cynical, maybe, or something? I don't need all y'all's input. I'll just ask my wife. You can, put a, you can put a suggestion note in the offering box and what trait you most despise in me. But, but we read this and we immediately, if we're not careful, we immediately assume he's, this is false humility, right? We're all masters of the humble brag. We know these ways to say things and, 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 and manipulate people to think certain ways about us and we're having to guard against us. But this isn't false humility. This is a man who knew God. And the longer a man walks with God and the more clearly a man sees God, the more clearly he sees himself. Paul just had an overwhelming awareness of his own sin and the holiness of God and his desperate need. And I've walked you through this before, but it's healthy to be reminded. 
we have a pretty good idea of when he wrote most of these letters. And 1 Corinthians was written probably about 55 AD. And we read him there, 15, 9, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, I'm the very least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He said, I'm the least of the apostles. Well, hey, dude, that's still pretty awesome. I'm the least of the foundation of the church. We come to Ephesians, the text that we just read, and it was written about five years later. And there he says that I'm the least of the saints. Hey, you're still getting into heaven. But then you fast forward to the end of his life, about five years after that, 63, 64, 65 AD, and he says, I am foremost of the sinners. It wasn't that Paul was getting worse. I assure you, Paul was becoming more and more like Christ with each passing day. But the more clearly he saw this Christ, the more clearly he saw himself, the more he recognized, I'm the worst. And you notice the reasons that he gives there. In that 1 Corinthians passage where he says, I'm not, not worthy to be called an apostle. Why does he say that? He says it's because I persecuted the church of God. When he's talking to Timothy, saying that he is the worst of the sinners, he says that Christ Jesus, our Lord, appointed me to this service, though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So we begin to see that the basis for Paul saying, I'm the chief of the sinners, I'm the least of the saints, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, isn't so much tied to who he is today, but who he was when Christ found him. I know who I was. What did I say earlier in your assurance of pardon? That text I read, 1 Corinthians 6, as were some of you. This is who you were. That's what makes grace amazing. He knows who he was. And he's seen this grace of God. And it's not just this grace in calling him out of darkness and unto light. It's not just grace that he would give him this charge. It's the grace by which he empowered him to do the work that he called him to. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. It's all of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, we've read this multiple times over the last few months. By grace, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Colossians 1.29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. The work of the ministry is God working through his servant. The grace of God coming to rest upon his servant isn't just, I love you enough to save you. It isn't just, I love you enough to set you aside unto this special service. It's, I love you enough to save you, to set you aside, and to work through you to accomplish that which I've called you to. That's the purpose. And so I, I want to finish this morning looking at that Isaiah 6 passage. Turn there with me. The text that David read to us. Because I told you, I don't, I don't want you to get lost in this picture. Look, there, there's a peculiar and a special and an unrepeatable apostolic calling that the Apostle Paul has. Not to be repeated as the part of the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. So we don't play where's Waldo in here. And lest you think, well, I haven't been called to be a pastor. I haven't been called to, to be an elder or a shepherd or an overseer. I'm a lady. I can't even be a pastor or a shepherd or an overseer. So what does any of this have to do with me? And so lest you believe that there's, there's nothing here, I, I want to show you a picture of not just the way God works in this prophet's life, but I truly believe what is necessary for any to be useful in the kingdom of God. What is necessary for any of the saints to fulfill this ministry to which he has called you. And he has called each of you to a ministry. 
may not be all that well defined. I know that there's many that I've met with over the years and they say, well, I don't even, I don't know what my ministry is. I'm not called to be a teacher. Well, no, not all are. I'm not called to sing. I'm not called to preach. I don't even, I can't even really identify what my ministry is. And for some of you, I've walked with you and you're right. I don't have a title for what you do, but it's massive. Many of you are the, if I have to assign a task, you're like the ligaments holding the thing together. Like we all just fall apart without some of the ministry that's done from you people sitting in this room. And so you need to know that we're not just talking about apostles and prophets or even pastors. And so we know that God's ways are not our ways and we know that he works all things according to the counsel of his will and it's, it's not always going to be like this. As a matter of fact, I promise you it's not going to be like this, but you'll see a picture here, I think. The way in which God's grace comes in power towards his people to equip them for the ministry. And so we're in Isaiah chapter 6 and unlike Paul, Isaiah was a priest. He seems like he was a priest and I would imagine that you wouldn't have found a much more upright and righteous man in all of Israel. And so God calls this man to a ministry that from all outward appearances would look to be just abject failure. You're going to go and you're going to proclaim this message to a hard-hearted and to a rebellious people that are going to eventually be carried off into exile. God tells them, hearing they will not understand and seeing they will not perceive. He says that they'll have dull hearts and heavy ears and blind eyes. And, and you remember that Isaiah, he asked them, well, how long do I got to do this? Like, what, what's my contract here? When, when can I be a free agent and go sign up for a little something else? And what God says to him is, until cities lay waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes his people far away. You're going to do this all the way till the end. All the way until my people are dragged into exile. That's how long you're going to do this. So that text we read, Isaiah 6 verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. Now, I've referred you to John chapter 12, where it appears as though we're being told that the Lord here that Isaiah sees seated upon the throne is none other than Christ Jesus himself. And the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. And we've explored this text together and we've talked about the 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 covering of the face and the covering of the feet, that the covering of the feet is probably this recognition of their own creatureliness. Look, as holy angels, they are still not God. They are the creature, not the creator. And they cover their face because they can't bear to look upon this unmitigated, immediate, unveiled glory of God, even as holy, perfect, sinless angels. Verse three, and one called to another saying, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is filled with his glory. And the threshold, excuse me, the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with his smoke. I point your attention to the fact that the threshold shook, the foundation was wrought at the worship. At the worship. We must recognize that true worship can be a very disconcerting thing. The people of God gathering together to behold the glory of God, feeling the weight. I hear oftentimes from people who visit with us for the first time, they say there's just a gravity 
Some people hate it, right? Some people, it's just it's too, it's too heavy. It's too much. It's not what I'm looking for. Look, the world is heavy. I want to come in here and have something light and, and uplifting. And God is heavy. And true spiritual worship is heavy. And to behold the glory of God is heavy. And it will drive many people to run away. But to those with hearts turned towards him, those who have eyes to see it will lead them to conviction and to repentance. Having seen the glory of God, having seen his people, his creatures, rightly worshiping him. That's exactly what we see from Isaiah. Verse 5, he said, woe is me. I'm cursed. I'm damned. Previous to this, we see him uttering curses against these nations, against the, the, the rebellious people, against the idolaters. He isn't an idolater. He isn't an adulterer. He isn't a murderer. But he says, woe is me, for I am lost. If you have the old King James Version, it says, I am undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. It reminds me of so much what we read from King David. He says, I'm a worm, not a man. My bones are out of joint. My heart melts like wax. And what causes this? What causes this man to say, I'm a cursed man. I'm a man who's falling apart. He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. Isaiah sees his sin. I want to point something out to you. It's the very same sin as the people he's speaking woes against. He doesn't say, woe is me. I'm a man with unclean lips, but y'all have dirty hands. I have dirty lips, but y'all are the worst. He says, I'm a man with unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And what does a prophet do other than to proclaim the word of God? At the very point of my ministry, I'm unclean. Not in my weakness, but in my strength. You've heard men before say that the people of God, when they rightly see God as he is, they repent even of their own righteousness. They repent even of their own strength. Isaiah's going to go on to say that even our best deeds, even our good deeds, they're like filthy rags. There's something disgusting worthy to be thrown out. Not that they don't please God, because by his grace and through his son, they're acceptable and they're pleasing. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Why? What brought him to this place? He says, for because I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. What do I pray? What did I pray this morning and what do I pray time and time and time again? Father, show me yourself. Show me myself. Beloved, you cannot see God and see you and still have high self-esteem. You cannot see God and see yourself and feel great about yourself. What you can do is you can see God and you can see yourself and you can praise Christ Jesus. He says, I've seen you. And how many times do we see this throughout the scriptures? What's Peter's response when he sees something of the holiness and the glory of God in Christ? Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I am undone. I'm coming apart at the scenes. I'm cursed because I've seen myself in the light of the glory of God. Beloved, I tell you more than anything else in all the universe, this is what you need. If you're going to be useful in the kingdom of God. If you're going to fulfill the ministry to which God has called you, if you're going to be a faithful servant that need not be ashamed, if you're going to stand before God and hear well done, good and faithful servant on that last day, what you need today more than anything else, 
more than power, more than wisdom, more than intellect, more than popularity, more than winsomeness, more than anything else in all the world. What you need is this right here to behold the glory of God and tremble. To fall on your face before the God of the universe and say, woe is me, I am undone. And here's what you'll find on that day. Verse 9. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Why was the altar already hot? Why are there already burning coals upon the altar? Because the sacrifice has already been made. The atonement has already been offered. Do you see it? I've already done everything that needs to be done to atone for your sins. I've already done everything that needs to be done to extend this grace to you. So he takes some of the tongs and he takes this, he takes this, um, this burning ember, this coal, and he brings it to him. And we see in this a picture of Christ Jesus. He says, woe is me. We look backwards and we see the curse that Isaiah is calling upon himself. This curse fell on Christ Jesus. That's where the atonement comes. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the burning coal that he had taken from tong, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. Not only has he given evidence that his sins have been atoned for and his guilt has been taken away, but he cauterizes, he cleanses, he heals the very instrument through which God will work. You have been forgiven. You're being sanctified. You will be used all because of the work that was done apart from you. That's the picture. And beloved, how much would you give to hear the word of God saying to you, your guilt has been removed. Your sins have been forgiven. I tell you, you hear it every single week from this pulpit. No, you don't hear a booming voice from heaven and no, you don't see the son of God in a vision. But we behold his word. What does this come from? The mouth of God. And you hear him say, and you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood up against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing to the cross. It's only then that he's ready to hear the call of God as he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I promise you, he didn't jump up and wave his hand. His face was still to the ground still recognizing his own unworthiness and yet God's sufficiency in this calling. And he says, here I am, send me. Beloved, this is what we need to be the people that God has called us to be. This is what we need. Each of us is what we need to fill a ministry that God has called us to for the building up of this body. Father God, we praise you. And we thank you for your grace your mercy and your goodness and your work in calling each of us, not just from death to life, but into this ministry that you've given us. So help us to seek it out, Father, and help us to walk in complete dependence upon you, trusting that your power is sufficient even and especially in our weakness. So, Father, we pray as we sing now and worship you in light of this, that you would come and speak words of assurance where necessary, words of conviction where needed, Breathe life where there is none. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.